But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. Today we have two guests, Murad and Jeff Andrew. How are you guys? Doing well. And my co-host, Michael Goldstein. How are you, Michael? Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Jeff, let's start with you. You, your, your background, you're an attorney, you're an accountant, and you are a Bitcoiner. Uh, how did you like find out about Bitcoin? I first, I mean, first came on my radar in, I'd say, 2011, 2012, although I didn't really, at the time, I just kind of thought it was like a crazy thing in the background, right? Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't really get personally involved at that point, just started hearing the rumblings. And then over time, uh, 2013 is when I really started making, uh, I guess, a financial investment in Bitcoin. Um, it always appealed to me because I was always a little bit of a gold bug. I've always had gold. So Bitcoin is sort of the next natural evolution for a lot of us from there. And uh, then I started offering services in my practice to clients, you know, that help Bitcoin, which at the time I thought was, ah, this will be like a fun thing. Maybe one or two people will be interested in this. Because again, when I first started doing this, so few people were involved in Bitcoin and then it just really took off. And that became a virtuous cycle where I got more involved yep. and, you know, here we are today. Awesome. And Murad, I, I remember, I think it was a tweet thread that you put out that I first saw. I immediately knew that there was an intelligent mind behind this account. And so I uh, started promoting your stuff and, and then you wrote with Adam Tash. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Tache. Tache. It's very French. I should know better. Yeah. And you wrote with him two pieces, the many faces of Bitcoin and the future of Bitcoin? Past and future. The past and future of Bitcoin, uh, which are both fantastic. And I highly recommend our audience to go check them out. And then you were on Stefan Levera's podcast. Uh, have you done Marty Benz yet? Yes. Yeah. So uh, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you have not listened to Tales from the Crypt with Marty Bent or the Stefan Levera podcast, just hit pause. Go check those episodes out. You'll uh, get Murad 101, uh, which uh, is, I think, required listening for uh, Bitcoiners, especially if you're a kind of what I call like monetary maximalist uh, approach to the the economics of this. Murad, how, how did you hear about Bitcoin and like what were your first thoughts? Yeah, so um, 
I sort of started getting into it in 2013. And uh, at the end of 2013, early 2014, I was doing a year abroad in China uh, when I was in college. And uh, some of my friends who were like within the program with me, a uh, couple of kids from Dartmouth, a couple of kids from Yale, they were actually like trading Bitcoin, like P2P. Uh, a lot of the exchanges in China in particular, like didn't have a lot of liquidity still back then. And you know, like that was what, like when the previous bubble was peaking essentially, and they were bringing Bitcoin from Europe or from America um, and essentially like selling it at a relatively small markup and just like making money that way. And uh, there were a couple of meetups in Beijing, um, both like foreigners, Chinese people there. And like, that's sort of how I got into it at first um, and sort of been looking at it more and more ever since. Yeah. So it's it's strange to me that like Bitcoin traverses all cultural boundaries, but I, I think it speaks to like the universal nature of money uh, in, in any society, but even like across classes, like you would think that Ivy League educated people, part of the, you know, like East Coast elite would all be Ben Bernanke, neoliberal uh, fans and think that Bitcoin's an insane experiment. Um, but it sounds like the profit motive got the better of them in, in this case, if they're uh, doing some arbitrage while abroad. So recently, um, well, let's, 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 Jeff, I think that like our audience should know about the services you currently provide. Sure. Uh, I think that they might, some of them find it interesting. It's not for everyone, but you can talk about that. Sure. One of the things uh, most useful to Bitcoiners that I do is offer a service where we can structure an IRA or a Roth IRA in such a way that you can hold Bitcoin in there or, or theoretically other cryptocurrencies. But of course, we hope that you don't. <laughs> uh, but in such a way where you hold all the private keys. So most of the providers that offer services um, where they allow you to hold Bitcoin within an IRA are at least somewhat custodial in nature, meaning that either they hold all the keys, in which case it's not really your Bitcoin, or it's a multi-sig solution where you hold some of the keys, they hold some of the keys, which can have benefits depending on your outlook. However, that's very expensive. Um, the way we set things up for you, there's essentially no ongoing fees after we do the initial setup. You're in control of your own private keys. You can buy on essentially any exchange you like. You can store on a hardware wallet, a paper wallet. You can use the Glacier protocol. You're basically in full control. The other main thing that I offer clients uh, that is somewhat useful, and this is more for altcoin bag holders looking to get out, but uh, we do charitable remainder trusts with cryptocurrency. So you can use that with, let's say, you bought a bunch of Ethereum, you realized, hey, this shot up to $900, but now you need to get out of this before the whole network comes crashing down. You could have contributed it to something called a charitable remainder trust, which allows you to sell that altcoin, or you can do this with Bitcoin on a tax-free basis diversify into other types of investments and then you get an annual payout every year for the rest of your life until you die gotcha now so like for the ira i think the the number one pushback you get is first of all from a privacy perspective are aren't you broadcasting to the government that hey i own bitcoins and thus like if they want to you know bitcoiners they look at the history of gold and gold getting seized and they're like look if the government knows you have bitcoins, they're just going to come and seize them. So you got to sure. find a private way to. But then, but that aside, well, yeah. That, well, I was yeah. going to say the one point on that is the only thing that's actually broadcast to the IRS is the value in the account. 
Oh, interesting. Um, Not the assets. So the actual, there's no uh, like itemization of assets that gets broadcast to the IRS. They all they get every year is a form that essentially says, "Here was the value of my account on December 31st," and that's it. And now the only cha recent change was there's a box that the custodian has to check if it's a hard to value asset. Um, but I don't believe that's a new regulation that the custodians handle. I don't believe Bitcoin would even fall into that because it's, right. it's traded on an exchange. For certain purposes, like charitable remainder trusts, Bitcoin is bizarrely considered a hard-to-value asset. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would apply to an IRA. So no, you're not giving away any real information to the government. They don't know where you're storing it. Um, they would know that you're if you open an account on an exchange, obviously they're going to know about that. Right. There's no way around that, um, but that's not really unique to an IRA. Right. Uh, and then the other thing is that, like, hey, Bitcoin is going to outlive the IRS. So why are we worried about taxes? If, if you're going to hold until post-hyper-Bitcoinization when the federal government's wiped out, you know, that's kind of the, uh, the idea there, uh, then you, you don't need to worry about a tax strategy. Sure. And that, you know, that's a decent point. The idea, if you do it through an IRA... There's a couple benefits. First of all, if you, if you use a Roth, which would make it non-taxable forever, even when you withdraw someday. Well, you know, I'm almost 40, so by the time I retire, I don't know that we're necessarily going to be in hyper-Bitcoinization yet. Taxes may still be an issue. You know, I'm only going to be, at most 20 years from now, I'll be retired, so yeah. I'm not looking that far into the future. Um, the other issue is, if you do believe that, one of the things that you can do is instead of using a Roth for your Bitcoin, you can use a traditional IRA which doesn't obviate the tax on the back end after you retire, but it allows you to take a tax deduction against your taxes right now mm. um, while you're still working. The other thing that it allows you to do is if you have any old 401ks currently and the money's just sitting there and it's in stocks, bonds, whatever, mutual funds, and you'd like to move some of that into Bitcoin, if you don't do that via the IRA setup like I've been discussing, that's going to create a taxable event for you because you'd have to actually pull the money out of that old 401k, pay the tax on it, and go buy Bitcoin. And pay the penalty too, right? Uh, right, exactly. If you're under 59 and a half, you also have to pay the penalty. Yeah. Whereas with a setup like this, you can do a tax-free rollover from that old 401k into an IRA, use that to buy Bitcoin, and you just postponed all the taxes there. Obviously, that allows you to buy more Bitcoin because you're doing it before taxes instead of after taxes. Right, and if the IRS goes belly up, then like you've got your private keys, and like what what do you care? That and if it's a, right on a traditional IRA, you're in great shape because you got the, the deduction or the tax free rollover up front. And if the IRS is gone by the time you make a withdrawal, you don't have to worry about the tax on the withdrawal either. Awesome. So this ties in nicely with I think the the number one question, Murad, is when moon. When, do, when, when is hyper-Bitcoinization going to happen per your charts? Like the ultimate final the The, the final bots. I don't know, 15, 20 years from now? Okay. All right. So when wow. Jeff's getting ready to retire, yeah. it's perfect. Yeah, it's perfect timing. <laughs> uh, so, uh, right, but, you know, we're, that's, that's longer term. And I think that, like, one of the, the challenges during this bear market, the previous bear market, and the one before that, and on and on, is that like we have to balance um, thinking about the long term, which everyone is super bullish about, with thinking about the medium term, where 
there are other factors other than Bitcoin's underlying fundamental monetary properties that are at play, namely the relative liquidity of participants in the Bitcoin market. Uh, how much money do they have to put to work? And by how much money, I mean, how much fiat do they still have as dry powder that they could put to use and you know buy Bitcoins with um, versus how many Bitcoins do they own that they're going to need to liquidate for any number of reasons, uh, whether it's because their hedge fund is getting, uh, you know, uh, withdrawals or they are a startup that raised, you know, that holds Bitcoins and is burning, spending Bitcoins on development or whatever. Now, last last cycle, that was fairly common. I think that this cycle, it seems as though the startups are a bunch of ICOs and they mostly hold Ethereum. So that seems to be um, why we're seeing a divergence between Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm done rambling on because, well, so my point being, though, is that like who the participants are, what their balance sheets look like, what their psychology is, feeds into what's going on in the order book, feeds into what's going on in volume and in the price uh, on the short to medium term. Uh, and then we can look at those charts and we can kind of try to reverse engineer things and see, okay, well, this is what's, what, what's going on uh, with the short and medium term fundamentals. Um, all this to say that I would, even if, even if you think that the price is going to continue going down, the optimal strategy may still be to be dollar cost averaging into that bear market. Uh, and you know, every two weeks you get your paycheck, you work with a financial planner to determine how much you should be saving where, um, you know, not necessarily 100% into Bitcoin uh, if, if you wanna be a, a strong holder. Uh, but uh, you know, that's, that's a different conversation. Uh, rather than like trying to go all in at a specific time or leveraging up, as a retail investor specifically. Uh, and then the other thing too, is that like, even if you think the price is gonna continue going down, uh, that doesn't mean that you should immediately sell everything today and then try to buy back at a lower price, which I think like is psychologically appealing to people. Um, the problem is getting the timing right. And then you got capital gains taxes that you gotta pay on that, uh, which might be short or long-term. Right now, they're still short term, right? If you if you panic bought the top at 18 grand uh, and now you're panic selling the bottom, uh, not a good situation to be in tax wise. Um, and and then there's also just the cognitive overhead of having to make these decisions. Like to me, it's it's just so much easier to focus on things that are like within my control, making more money and spending less money so that there's more savings that I can put towards investments in general. Like that's, that probably makes more sense in terms of accumulating Bitcoins than trying to time the market and move things around. Your rationale there is why I've never sold a Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm saying all these like disclaimers because we're about to have a conversation about short to medium term price and where, where Mirad sees it. And I actually kind of, I'm sympathetic to like your analysis rather than the kind of Goldilocks rose colored glasses analysis of 
tomorrow we're going up, you know, 50%. Like, that's, uh, does, it doesn't seem realistic. Um, anyway, uh, I, I'm done rambling. Yeah, a lot of my friends, um, Housefly, Marty Ben, Matt O'Dell, they're always like, you're like the most bullish person I know in the, like, in general, but you're like the most bearish person, like, in the, in the short term, you know yeah. what I mean? And I don't think those two things necessarily conflict. Um, I am going to be the buyer of last resort or close to it in this bear cycle. I think sometime in the first half of 2019. But um, I don't necessarily subscribe to the hodler um, mentality fully. Um, I think you can sell the tops and buy the bottoms or, or at least close to it, right? Uh, even if you're like within 40% of that range, there's still a lot of you can you can be mul- you can be multiplying your Bitcoin wealth in these cycles. There's probably going to be three or four more before this actually becomes like a global widespread money, and there's money to be made. That that assumes a certain level of stoicism and emotional control, which I wish I possessed, but I know empirically that I do not. Uh, you know, during the bull market uh, in December. I was more bullish than I'd ever, you know, been before, and uh, I was basically intoxicated from the price the entire time. So I know that if I was trying to actively trade, I would have been going, you know, 100x leverage on BitMEX, um, and not necessarily thinking about how to trim my position to, you know, build up a uh, build up a USD position that I could then deploy in the coming bear market. Like, to me, it was like, there's no bear market uh, on the horizon. Like, the price is going to infinity or whatever. But, um, so, like, one of the challenges is, like, and Warren Buffett talks about this with stock investing. It's, like, your your own psychology of trying to stay level-headed and calm through what, frankly, is, like, an, an entirely unnatural process. Uh, whether it's with a stock price going up 10x, but I think especially with a money going up 10x in value, like that's not something that we're used to seeing. Uh, you know, the U.S. dollar did not like have an ICO and then go up dramatically in value. It's like tied to gold and did the opposite of gradually decreasing in value. Um, so I, I think that like this. So what? My challenge too is like, what makes you think you have the psychology to sell the top and buy the bottom? I think like nobody can do it perfectly, but as I've said that um, there are certain patterns, there are certain things that you can look at to um, at least get within that range, right? And now that we've had this previous bull market and the bear market right now, we sort of have more data and more data points to see like what was similar in the in the in the one before that, and in this one, and you can sort of extrapolate. And uh, of course, the numbers are going to be higher. All, all, all the statistics are going to be higher the next time around. But um, I think it, you can still, you can still like sort of get those things. And like in my case, I might have been lucky. Uh, so I've been sitting on relatively big Bitcoin positions ever since China. And uh, this time around, I was also quite intoxicated in November, December. But uh, January third, um, I went to my bar, like my usual barber. And um, he was telling me about IOTA. He was telling me about some of these other things. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know what happened. I wasn't even planning on selling, but something just like, I just got spooked. And so I sold 
a big chunk of that on January 3rd. And like, luckily, like that was like the thing to do. Essentially. It's the Kennedy shoe sign boy story. Right. We've heard that story. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. Um, and so like, I, I want it to where like, it would it, in an ideal world, everyone would be doing that and thus there would be no bull or bear market, right? It would just be... Or it would be like a steady grind, right? Yeah, yeah. it would be a... Right, it would be just a very long uh, increase of value in Bitcoin until, you know... For that to be the case, like, it's, nobody would have to sell ever, essentially, right? Well, no, you just have to have a good balance between buyers and sellers. Buyers would always have to make up the slack. Yeah. And then some, as compared to the sellers. Right. Um, but that's just not realistic. Like, because, that would also mean the miners never sell what they get as well. Well, not necessarily. Like, as long as there's enough buyers to make up for the creation of Bitcoins. Um, here's the thing. Here's, here's and and a steady rate of adoption is the biggest thing. Like, right. having X percentage right. of new Bitcoiners every month. Because right now it's very lumpy. Like, it comes in waves. And it's kind of a momentum self-reinforcing phenomenon. Well, it's never going to be steady. It's always going to be in these waves because like uh, it's always going to be in these waves and they correspond to like the collective like hive mind emotions and mostly fear and greed. But um, we need to realize that like this is going to take time, um, even in today's hyper globalized age. And even if there was like a P2P exchange and a fiat on ramp in every city, like it doesn't matter because you still need time for like sort of this phenomena and the understanding and sort of the people's uh, sort of getting to know this thing to uh, sort of ripple through the world, no pun intended. To, yeah. To... I, you know, that's like... And attention is scarce. Money is scarce. Yeah. Wealth is scarce. There's only like, and that's why you need sort of this uh, sort of wave of headlines and then sort of apathy. Right. Yeah. We usually talk about the uh, non-neutrality of money just in the sense of new money being added to the economy, but I think you're basically describing how the non-neutrality of money has has other effects, such as you know how it gets adopted. You know, there's yeah. we I think it's oblig obligatory to uh, obligatory to to quote the you know famous William Gibson quote of you know the future is here; it's just not evenly distributed. Right. Well, it's also strange how there's half of people think or say, hey, this is going to take longer than you expect. But the other half, I think, like, they need to understand that this is not taking as long as you would have necessarily if, as expected, right? Because, like, it's been less than a decade that Bitcoin has existed. Right. And already, like, you have uh, futures trading yeah. on major, like, international financial centers, uh backed with ice coming out like you wouldn't necessarily have expected a new money to go from zero to futures trading at you know unregulated exchanges in nine years like that's kind of especially I, when it's non-government money oh yeah yeah entirely Euro, private Euro easily took over uh europe but it was also because the entire you know european establishment was uh pumping that shit point hard yeah, um, exactly. Someone has had to do everything on its own, so it's it's beyond impressive. We do need to acknowledge that, um, like, we might look at Bitcoin as a money, the the best hardest money ever invented. But 
most of sort of people in traditional finance and most of the people running these futures platforms, etc., they don't. Uh, to them, it could like half of them could be thinking that it's just a speculative mania of some like digital virtual World of Warcraft gold or whatever, and uh, they they're still gonna make money on like market making these options, just providing this infrastructure, etc. Where um, where they at best just think it's a hedge. Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Like, gold, like a neo gold. Right, right. A lot of people, now that's like, exactly. Like the next stage of evolution is them sort of seeing, oh, okay, it could get like half as big as gold and be like this yeah. sort of gold for millennials, right? Right. But like, um, that's, to me, that's like barely 5% of like the equation. You right. Know what I mean, um, well, it, it's, I, I don't think Bitcoin could have grown as much as it has in nine years if it relied on like altruism and ideology. Right, right. Like I think that it definitely has strong economic tailwinds that are making money for everyone from Coinbase to, you know, everyone trying to compete with Coinbase or BitMEX or whatever. Well, that's like one of some people in the Bitcoin community reiterate that point a lot. They say that like Bitcoin is fueled by greed. Like forget yeah. about all this ideological stuff. Everything that happens is people just trying to get richer. Yeah. For better or worse, I mean. Well, now, now I know what I'm going to start the episode with. It's a... Um, a recording of Milton Friedman being asked about greed and his point was like don't you think the Soviet Union is driven by greed as well like go over there you'll right, see yeah. how it is it's not like uh, you know, there's you can talk about ideology all day long but at the end of the day everyone's just trying to improve their lot in life um, yeah so how what are the next steps basically like so we have a happening coming up in 2020 but before that, right now we're on a long grind down in the bull market. Um, now, granted, like I, I say long grind, but it, it doesn't feel that way. In fact, we were just talking about how time is flying and uh, things are, are looking pretty good for Bitcoin. Uh, but um, where, do, where do you see the bottom for Bitcoin or what range, both by date and price? Um. The range of prices, I would say, between twenty-eight and forty-five hundred, and the range of uh, dates between this December and uh, like summer of twenty nineteen. And, and then afterwards, is it like a a flat yeah. accumulation period? Yeah, I expect like a three to five month period of flatness. Yeah, uh, and then we enter the next happening. Right. Oh, which is, I think, April or May 2020? It's uh, May 28th, uh, 2020. Yeah. It's on my birthday, actually. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. The party just got bigger. Yeah. We're going to have... We're have a happening party. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, we're going to have to do, like, a big steak dinner. It's going to be great. Um, all right. And and then what? So here's the thing, right? A lot of people, like, are looking for... Um, for like a certain headline to like fix things around. Now a lot of people are obsessed with Bact. Yeah, if yeah. Bact wasn't there, they would find something else to hope for. Right. You know what I mean? But to me, it's not like that. To me, bear markets, they need time. They need, so they need certain uh, price reduction, but more importantly, they need a sort of a, a certain amount of time to pass. And it's essentially like time heals all wounds. And it like, honestly, I don't even, I'm not even that like, bullish I, of course I think back is good but I'm thinking about it more in the long term perspective I don't think it's something that like when it launches like the price is going to go vertical I don't think it's right. going to happen um, maybe it will like slow down the descent but um, to me uh, like 
and this is the thing with like bear markets after especially after like parabolic euphoric moves um the like the more extreme the more extreme was the move and i think like this move to 20k in december even relative to the strong fundamentals that bitcoin has uh like relative to the overall adoption a lot of people can argue that this 20k number was a bit too high you know right. what i mean and um if you like if you plot it in various ways be it like linear regression or curves uh from like last bull market to this bull market or even from the very beginning to like uh like early bull market this time around like the hyper bitcoinization could still be proceeding in this like linear or like almost like a mildly exponent slowly exponential fashion mm -hmm. like without doing these spikes and these spikes are obviously unnatural they don't represent like true uh, holders of last resort they don't represent true buyers of last resort they don't represent like true these like newfound bitcoin maximalists uh, austrian yeah. lovers crypto anarchists that's not it it's people trying to get in most of these people are getting in late uh, the people who are making money in these bubbles are those who are already waiting for two three years you know right, what i mean right and these these last seven month people yeah some of them are going to make money most of them will lose money and sort of now we're in this process of exhausting sellers uh, I think a lot of people right now are realizing that this, it, with every week that the market doesn't revert, more and more people are coming to terms with the fact that, oh, like this might actually like only revert in 2019 or maybe even 2020. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, this is causing some sellers. A lot of people have sort of uh, higher time preferences and especially those people who came into Bitcoin and are still in Bitcoin for like these speculative reasons. You know, a lot of people... Uh, don't have the luxuries, unfortunately, to be thinking of 10, 20 year terms. To me, people who think like that, um, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege and it's a luxury, right? And a lot of people, they just want to like make some maneuvers and like essentially have something for the next two weeks. You know what I mean? And that's like, you, you can't do that. If, if you want to be in Bitcoin, it's really, uh, as Eric Barnett put it, it's like an 80 year mission and, yeah. uh, or maybe more, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe less, but you need to take a super long-term approach and like I am completely fine and came to peace with the fact that this might be like a 25 year affair. And I'm just going to, I mean, you can still do well in year to year or four year to four year periods. But um, yeah, we just need to be very patient. You need to look at it as an ultra marathon. My anecdote, like with regard to the mindset you were talking about is I was, uh, I was out with a girl recently a few weeks ago and she's like, ah, like what, just like talking about like random stuff. And I was like, ah, I'm going to New York to meet up with some Bitcoin friends. And she was like, Bitcoin? It's like, I thought about getting into that like last year, but I thought that was all done now. Like I didn't know that was still around, you know? And that's how like a lot of people, the way in which they're thinking about it, partially because of their natural preferences and partially because a lot of, this is scary, but a lot of people's exposure to Bitcoin is like CNBC, yeah. right? You know what I'm saying? So, so this is like coming back to the point that I mentioned earlier. Um, Two or three big bubbles is not enough to get it on the radar. It's you know how to succeed in life, and if you think of it like marketing for startups or marketing for corporates, advertising as well. Like it works when you show some, some something to someone six times, seven times, eight times. You know, a lot of people, if you like listen to podcasts or listen to interviews or just talk to Bitcoiners, they heard about it in 2011, thought about getting in 2012, and only got in like 2013, right? Yeah. And that's like kind of happened to a lot of us. A lot of us went through similar things, right? Uh, it's the same thing, right? And to millions of people, the 2017 was something that they saw the first time around. They wanted to get in, they didn't get in, but now maybe the 
early phases of the next peak bubble they might be getting in, you know, right, what I mean? or right. even the one after that. And so, um, once again, it takes time. Uh, it takes like attention. You need to push it many, many times. And like money needs to move. It's not like an instantaneous thing that people just can push a button, you know? It's a sort of serious decision to get in. Infrastructure is getting better. We are getting more exchanges. Um, a lot of people recently had a good idea. Uh, was it, it was either Nick Carter or Arjun Balaji, but they said, we need something like a uh, Shopify for P2P exchanges. And this way we sort of protect fiat on-ramps. We protect the system from like governmental attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if every country has like 12 local Bitcoin variants, right, right? right, run by these like small businesses or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, and things like like um, India essentially like banned both of their exchanges the, yesterday. Wow. Uh, which is like which is crazy. Yeah. Um, they. No coiners are very violent people, and uh, we gotta watch out for. Well, them. here's the thing, right? I, I'm telling like some of these older people, um, that. Like this thing could like change a lot of things about society, um, a lot, a lot of, and, and in a very profound way. And I mean, I don't know if as Bitcoiners we shouldn't even be advertising this, but like the, I like to joke that like Bitcoin is a way to completely alter and reorganize human society and just completely almost obliterate the concept of government, which is wrapped in a neo money, which is wrapped in a tech bubble, which is wrapped in a get rich quick scheme. Right. But it's like, as you like to say, there's onions, there's layers and layers and layers yeah. of, of this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's like, uh, oh, Bitcoin is a scam, that's stage one. Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme, is stage two. Bitcoin is digital gold, is like stage three. Then um, Bitcoin is like the neo monetary system, is like stage right. five. But there's like other stuff beyond there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Who knows? Um, maybe some of these like early sovereign individual style uh, prophecies will turn true. And with the sort of defunding of the state through untaxability and unprintability of money, you would cause what Seyfedian calls the specification of society at the least, or maybe just a turning, just privatizing everything and turning 200 countries into 5,000 micro states run by like corporates in a very, fiercely competitive environments. Who knows, right? Yeah. A lot of things could happen. And I do believe that things are getting accelerated. The technologies are getting accelerated. And so um, the next 50 years are going to be wild. Agree. Agree on that. Um, it's funny. I When I was trying to find a uh, good clip for the previous episode, I started listening to some, like an Ayn Rand interview. And when I was in high school, I, I guess it's probably like stereotypical at this point to say like I read Alice Shrugged and like became a libertarian. But um, no, I, to, to be fair, I, I read a Wikipedia article about anarcho-capitalism and became a libertarian and then read Ayn Rand. Um, but uh, she was, you know, I had not listened to her talk in 10 years now um, because I was like, in the mindset of like, oh, whatever, you know, she's like for uh, crazy objectivists and I'm not a crazy objectivist. I'm like a, a moderate libertarian, uh, anarcho-capitalist. Um, and, but like w- w- the way she talks about, first of all, she would have done so well in the age of Twitter because she would have been trolling the shit out of everyone on Twitter. And she speaks in very concise sound bites that have would have played really well to the medium. and. I wish she was still here with us, but also like, uh, 
so sharp-witted and uh, not giving an inch. Um, but yeah, you you talking about you know getting rid of the state or the overly, you know, the 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 big government uh, reminded me of that. And maybe you know like we talk about yeah, it'll be an Ayn Randian society that we're, we might be developing here uh, without consciously doing it. It'd be interesting. I think Safe did a good job of just showing us uh, in his book. It's stuff that we've been thinking about a long time, but he did a really good job of kind of laying it out with empirical stuff. It's just how much of society's money affects. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, reorganization of society is uh, definitely on the table. Um, it's, in fact, very difficult for me to think of sort of any aspect of society that is not affected somehow by um, money and the, the soundness or unsoundness thereof. Yeah, and it makes, it also like brings up the question of what are different governments going to do? Because I don't think that there's going to be like one homogenous response from governments. Like we're already kind of seeing this today. So you've got Malta or Bermuda, like these kind of fringe jurisdictions that anything goes sort of attitude. I don't know if people are getting paid off there or like what what the underlying dynamics are. And then on the other extreme, like you were saying, like India banning or China banning um, and then North Korea mining, Venezuela mining, Venezuela issuing a shit coin. I, I actually think that's like that that is the optimal exit scam of a government is to issue an ico shit coin and then like drop the uh, you know have everyone be a bag holder bags of government yeah i don't think anyone bought the venezuelan currency i think the whole story was just a lie yeah it flopped i don't yeah. that was my understanding yeah, of the story yeah. as well like i don't think it went anywhere it's it's so not, this is happened there. this is the world we live in where a, a sovereign cannot issue a money but you know block one with eos can right a billion dollars or whatever like there is well i just look at the libertarian paradise already is what you're saying yeah that's that's exactly <laughs> what i'm saying might be a libertarian dystopia but... so like a lot of a lot of bitcoiners are like annoyed with alts but i think like um this kind of like early stage competition is inevitable right. and like we need to go through it and like there, we don't really bitcoin doesn't really have competitor that is like makes us not sleep at night or anything like that. So uh, it's 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 fine. Like the situation is unfolding in a way where all the frauds are automatically being sort of uh, revealed as frauds, like just smoothly and slowly anyway. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree that having competition is motivating, even if you know that you're going to crush them, because yeah. like you do have to take action to crush them. It's not like it's enjoyable to crush things. Yeah. Right. And some of them also have created stuff for us to think about, right? So, yeah. like, Monero and Zcash, whatever you think of them, they have gotten Bitcoiners thinking about privacy. What privacy features do we want? What privacy features do we want at the base layer? What privacy features should be on the second layer? Right. What are the trade offs with those features? Things of that. And those are, you know, healthy discussions to have. They also show us by negative example of all the things that sort of uh, Satoshi and the Bitcoin community have done. Right. right. Which just Bitcoin's own uh, narrative and thesis, 
uh, just by showing like you know Satoshi didn't pre-mine, and so it, it, it the the altcoins uh, are able to show just how much better Bitcoin is by virtue of being you know not as good as Bitcoin, or ha- uh, how much better it is to not be touring complete, for instance, right? Yeah, there, there's that and and the uh, having the block size limit. So right. we're we're going to see by negative example with Ethereum what happens to node centralization and Infura or whatever the hell they're doing over there uh, of what what the bad alternative is or with Bitcoin Cash and their incessant hard forks and now they're spinning completely out of control. But um, yeah, they, they provide both positive competition and then negative, here's, here's what we should not do. <laughs> right. And just this morning, we received news that apparently 14 out of 21 EOS uh, like block producers have been colluding. Uh, and all these people in China essentially have been like making these under the table agreements uh, that, oh, okay, we're going to vote for you and these 13 of us going to vote for us, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, which like not only goes against their own constitution, but is also just showing like the immense level of centralization, which everyone suspected EOS of being centralized. But now like we know for a fact. Well, their constitution is a Google Doc, right? Right. Yeah. Which, I is, is written 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 by a handful of uh, blockchain system governance experts. Yeah. Right. Right. With with twenty years of experience with blockchain governance, um, and th- th- what I find absurd about that is that like we simultaneously have people saying code is law, which I also find to be absurd, but then also writing Google Doc constitutions. Um, it, the the issue with like the twenty one uh, block producers though I think is really enlightening in the sense that um, we had the same thing happen in Bitcoin with the miners and we it was ninety percent of the miners were going to collude to increase the block size limit and then they ran into Bitcoin's peer to peer node governance and it completely fell apart so like I think that's like a really good contrast of First of all, here's why it would be bad if there was only 21 Bitcoin nodes. It's right. like some people say like 21's enough. Like that's decentralized. No, 21's not enough. With 21, that's that's a classroom, okay? That's a classroom with one teacher. They can all communicate. That might be enough for like a dice dap or whatever, right? Yeah. But that's not enough for like uh, the global, trustless, unseizable, unprintable money. Right, yeah. Because the temptation there is, hey, uh, if 14 of us or however many 18 of us get together, like we can give ourselves seniorage. We can print more money for ourselves, for our own benefit. And if that, if they're the miners, then like that's just inevitably going to happen. And that's where I think that like nodes, non-mining nodes, which gets so much shit, are, are crucial because that means that they are not ideologically aligned with increasing the mining reward. They're opposed to it. Right. Um, and so to me, like, if we want to have a money that it, it maximizes on soundness and on the credibility of monetary policy, then we sh- should have it such that the non-mining nodes are the most powerful, like, set of constituents in the system. I think we're uh, indebted quite a bit to Nick Zaber for introducing the, you know, terminology of social scalability. Like you just said, like, you know, 21 nodes might very well be enough for some specific types of applications. But I think, you know, once again, by by negative example, uh, Bitcoin is showing uh, that it's thinking about 
adversaries on a, you know, orders of magnitude, um, you know, levels higher than, than all of these other uh, projects, and especially something like money, you know, once again, you know, I, I recommend people go look at Safe's book and, you know, some other monetary history books, just showing, like, you know, if you're using a money that's not thinking about adversaries on a large enough scale, you will get wrecked by the people who are. Yeah. Um, okay, so back to our conversation about the price, because I think that it's uh, it's an interesting when topic. You... <laughs> well, no, but after, the, like, wh what I find most interesting about Bitcoin is that people liken it to the tulip mania, but they never explained to me why tulip mania did not happen repeatedly. And uh, there's also evidence that it never happened at all. Right. Well, yeah. 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 There's that too. But let's that it was like very short lived and like very niche among like a, a bunch of like aristocrat families in, in the Netherlands. And it wasn't really so like widespread yeah. collapse or whatever. But if we take the meme at face value, yeah. The, yeah. the narrative at face value of like people will find some random asset, whether it's it's weed pot stocks right now or like the hot thing. In but, my day, it was Beanie Babies. My first job, my first full time job was data entry at a Beanie Baby reseller. <laughs> sold rare. Wow. People would fly in from all a over. A brokerage facility. That's yeah, what it was. Yeah. People would fly in from all over the world to like come and look at these Beanie wow. Babies. We had all this security. Like this was like a real thing. Yeah. So you've been in the industry for a while. Correct. Yeah. yeah, I was involved with you know uh, shit coins when they were physical. Yeah, that's hilarious. One of the forces driving Bitcoin adoption is uh, relevant to this is what I describe as people's baseline desire to gamble, mm -hmm. and people's baseline desire to speculate, and that could probably be like one seventh, if not more, of like the pie chart of the forces pushing this thing further you know so and, yes in a in a bull market and in a bear market if they're like shorting or whatever uh, what i was gonna ask is like when we're when we're flat after you know we're done with the bear market and it's just the bottom why what is the catalyst that means that we enter into a new bull market and you i, I could ask that question about like 2015 like, why is it that 2016 happened where we steadily trended upwards? Um, and what's what's the adoption driver there? To me, like it's kind of controversial because Bitcoin is a monetary good. Like price itself is kind of a fundamental. And the size of the, the height and the width of the cycles is also kind of like a fundamental. But if Bitcoin, like if pe people are going to start speculating about like the bottom as well, especially those that are long term believers, long term Bitcoiners, some hedge funds, etc., uh, that are sort of see the future potential in this thing, they are going to be speculating on a more macro scale with these big cycles, like big entries, big exits, right, that we discussed. And um, if and this is kind of the way I see it, if Bitcoin essentially bottoms anywhere I don't want to say like right above 1300 because there's a lot of time has passed mm -hmm. but let's say if bitcoin bottoms like above 2k or preferably above 3k then essentially like hyper bitcoinization albeit a bit slowly is intact and so if bitcoin bottoms at 3k and starts to slowly just slowly going higher like very slowly going yeah. higher then that's bullish like right. that in itself is bullish that in itself means that the number of believers holders and like seers of this future around the world has increased yeah and it's interesting because like so basically the argument you're saying is that um 
there there's some reflexivity with the price but it, it the bottom line is people who are anticipating greater future adoption more use cases in the future and then just more like and but i was so michael uh published today um like email threads with satoshi and it's the exact same thing in 2009 satoshi is like look i don't know like it, because how Finney's like how do we price this like how do we attach a value to this i think that's like the biggest problem we have in bitcoin right now in january 2009 yeah and and satoshi's talking about like well in the future we could be using this for yeah. x number of use cases yeah, yeah. that he lists out and if you divide and then at the that, end yeah yeah. He's, yeah yeah if yeah, you yeah. D- divide yeah the d- total yeah. or well how finney says if you divide like global wealth you know oh it might make sense to like buy some just and yeah. so it's very strange to me that um it, it seems like very little of bitcoin's value and like this is what critics say is like comes from actual day-to-day usage and it's all about people anticipating future usage and then people anticipating others anticipating future usage i mean i don't think people use bitcoin today you know i mean there's there are some niche use cases some speculation on certain exchanges without kyc okay certain a lot of people use it for remittances or people use it as like um as like a payment channel for those things etc but like the way i see it right right yeah and if you want to use your bitcoins go to noted.org and yeah i I agree i think we're still in that situation as well yeah um like no one i see and like we've discussed this earlier um technically holding a monetary good like will always be like speculation just like there's going to be like a different sort of uh spectrum of it right but um the spectrum is interesting because with the dollar, you're speculating that you holding dollars, like it's going to go down 2% in value. But but if you're like um, Seth Klarman at Bapas Group and your idea is like, well, Margin I'm going to... safety. Yeah, and I'm, I'm waiting for other assets to like go down 40% and then I will spend my dollars to buy the, those value investments. Um, and so he's speculating on like, that the dollar's not going to lose more value than it is, and then of course that the financial assets are going to decrease in value. But um, it's 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 unusual to own a medium of exchange with like the anticipation of it's going to go up ten x in value. Right. Like normally it's like it's it's going to hold steady while other things fluctuate, and there's uncertainty in the outside world of it. Well, that's like that that would be its purpose after it's been relatively fully monetized. But between now and then, it's all essentially a bet. A bet that uh, the world will game theoretically converge on understanding this. And because um, a lot of people like describe Bitcoin as super gold, because it's like similar to gold, but much better in like dozens of ways. Yeah. And um, we believe that Bitcoin could win where gold could not. And because it doesn't suffer from the centralization in vaults problem, it doesn't suffer from not being transportable, it's essentially like a stone you can, I can send to my friend in Russia in one hour, right? And um, more importantly, it's uh, like its inflation rate is even more attractive, right? And yeah. it, let's say gold is what, 1.6 per year, whatever. And uh, eventually Bitcoin is going to equilibrate at like negative 0.1 or something like that, right? Well, yeah, and gold is 1.6% per year if the price is not going up. Right. right. 
if the price of gold is going up dramatically and we're getting like ten thousand dollars, if you go to like two point two point one, they're way more dependent on miners than we are. Yeah, right. yeah, and their difficulty adjustment sucks right. Right, compared yeah. to Bitcoin. It's Eventually, like, it's you have like, people pulling in asteroids. And, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, Melting down teeth out of corpses and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although people probably don't like it when we get bearish on gold and we're like, "Hey, Bitcoin's so much better than gold." They're like, "No, See, they're compliments." Here's, <laughs> yeah. Here's like, I don't know. Maybe this is like unusual for like the Bitcoin space, but I don't really like gold that much. Same. I don't know any. Like uh, fiat, like fiat, essentially defeated gold. That's by, that's be, my argument. Be it yeah. by violence or not by violence, um, yeah. they've done it. And I, I've never really cared for gold that much. Um, also, like a lot of gold buggery to me is like predicated on like the the world going to shit essentially. But uh, yeah, Bitcoiners have I think like some talk about like the age of turbulence or whatever. But I think they're just a bit more optimistic and like more techno utopian rather than just like oh there's gonna be an apocalypse and then there's gonna be like the four horsemen. But then the gold bugs are gonna protect their world. And I am a gold holder, and I never totally bought into that either because right. it was always like. You know, if things were that bad, yeah. I don't even know how much I would really care. Right. Exactly. About yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you, you could have an in between scenario, right? Where like unless it may be like a warlord or something. The yeah, right. the, the the debt level got so high <laughs> that governments have to print a bunch of money, and thus you know like money's got trashed or fiat got trashed, but gold does well in that scenario, um, and at the same time like. Governments don't necessarily fall apart. Like there's still law and order and whatnot, and there's still a functioning economy. It's just that gold has outperformed any other uh, investment, and like that was the case in the '70s, right? Where where we had 20% inflation here in the U.S. until Paul Volcker came around and reestablished the credibility of U.S. monetary policy. Um, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree that like gold wins if fiat fails. And I think that Bitcoin can win if fiat does not increase its competitiveness. Because right now, I think the U.S. dollar has, for the past you know three decades has been competing with gold, and you know you can make your own judgment about how well it's done. Seems to have done rather well, uh, but now it's got to compete with someone even harder. Right. And will it be able to? I'm very very skeptical. Well, it it's will. also like historically we've seen governments physically take gold from people, right? During times of need, uh, of one kind or another, and like that's going to be much more difficult to do with Bitcoin. Essentially impossible. Yeah. Um, and you can't store it like in your in you can't store like a quarter of the nation's supply in a basement somewhere, you know? Um, well, okay. It's what much do you, more distributed in physically and metaphorically. What do you say to people who are like, okay, uh, you know, if, if a government official is putting a gun to your head, it doesn't matter if it's Bitcoin or gold. Okay, yeah, but uh, still, like, the, in the case of a cryptographic digital asset that's completely non-tangible and transferable anywhere in the world instantly, then that's just not as scalable as getting rocks out of people's uh, beds. Right, Yeah. right. Totally right. And, like, look, once we have, like, more than, uh, like, 60 million Bitcoiners around the world or whatever, it's just, like, it just doesn't work, you know? Yeah. So I think almost that's why I worry a little bit about the Wall Street adoption of Bitcoin, whether it's backed or a future ETF or whatever on one hand. But on the other hand, I think it makes Bitcoin so much more resilient to government intervention right. because they're not going to mess around with the people that pay for their campaigns. Right. right. Well, and, and they've yeah. got some skin in this now, too. Right. 
And if like the the Fed is owned by the banks, if these banks start like dealing in Bitcoin, owning Bitcoin, yeah, then they're gonna be like, oh shit, we might as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I mean, not to mention people in the government themselves, which we have plenty of historical cases now of government agents uh, dipping their feet into Bitcoin, whether they're rogue agents like uh, Powers, Newt Gingrich, rogue case, or there's that whole Bulgarian scandal of like they had taken some drug money. Uh, for people that was in bitcoins, and then that money disappeared somewhere, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, and we also have, you know, on record, you know, uh, was it Giancarlo mentioning, like, you know, his niece or something owns bitcoin, meaning like all these people are becoming, you know, slowly personally tied to bitcoins themselves. So, um, you know, they they too, I mean, they they'll have a little bit of special privilege. They they might not. Um, get guns to their heads as quickly, but um, you know they'll they'll be in on the game as well. They'll be sort of <laughs> I would imagine they would be torn um, in many ways on on such a topic. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just to add to that, like I just recently wrote to my friend just last night. I said, in the grand scheme of things, governments eventually buying Bitcoin will be sort of one of those grand global actions that puts the coffin in the nail of government institutions themselves but they will buy it anyway because they yeah. don't they don't have to they, they, they won't they won't have a choice right um and w so uh i'd argue that it's like it's it's the beginning of the privatization of governments right right when they exactly and uh once that what's goldstein uh frequently talks about once government officials start buying bitcoin privately then once they become major holders of this asset, they will want to use public uh, investment funds or public balance sheets uh, to pump this asset even more and just yeah. get richer. You know, yeah. it's like this mental capture thing. Uh, and then just on the regulatory level, like the CFTC guy Giancarlo, he was talking about like his relative, his daughter. I don't know who it was, but that's like yeah. into crypto. Yeah. And so he was like, "Hey, look, we can't just go and crack down on this. Like people are, kids are interested in this. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to to see that." Play out. Right, and a lot of people think that like government, any government or any any given country's government is like this one body and sixteen old men sitting around round table and just like deciding and planning everything. Yeah. But really, like that's impossible. Even people like within governments, they're kind of like competing against each other. They also don't want to get rich. They also want their family to do well. You know yeah. what I mean? They have their own sort of self-interested desires. You know? Yeah. And so um, sometimes they conflict with like the commune. Sometimes they conflict with each other, etc. And if Bitcoin is indeed price continuously climbing higher through these cycles, and if some someone in their family owns it, eventually I think um, it's going to get increasingly harder to stop. Yeah. Yeah, I just gotta. I mean, it's just harnessing that greed and uh, everyone. Right. You know, th th this is like what you're saying. You know, like greed, greed being everywhere, even in in you know communist uh, Russia. Right. Um, it does, it does in many ways trump ideology. Well, speaking of which, uh, I think like, let's ignore Western countries with like relatively semi-functioning democracies like America right now, right? Um, the people, the people who Bitcoin uh, was in, essentially invented to fight against, the second world, third world country dictators like Maduro, like, I don't know, communist party officials in China, North Korea, whatever. Uh, I think like those people are going to be major buyers either in like in the next wave or the wave after that. And honestly, um, 
the way I understand it, they will they are they're like prime customers for Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, they like the people who seize other people's wealth are people who need unseizable assets the most. The people who freeze other assets need unfreezable assets. The people who print the most money need the unprintable money. You know what I mean? It all aligns perfectly. I mean, they need the censorship resistance, if nothing else, because right. they're going to face sanctions. From right, it, exactly, exactly. So it's like Russian officials, North Korean officials, Chinese officials, who frequently to this day have their personal bank accounts in Switzerland, in the Caribbean, yet constantly freezing. They are Luxembourg lawyers calling them and stuff. They don't need to deal with that anymore. You know? Right. And yeah. for better or worse, the people who Bitcoin was invented to fight against will be major buyers. Like they're like they're the next after retail or after cryptographers to buy, essentially. Yeah. For for years ago, I people would get on my case. It's like, well, oh well, you know, the, the Rothschilds or you know, you name some powerful family that uh, they, they won't want this to happen. So they'll <laughs> crack it down. They'll make us all use you know their fiat money or whatever. Um, and the question I always had for them is like, well. You know, if they understand that that's the nature of the fiat money that they're imposing on people, you know, do you think that they're going to want to have their wealth um, tied up in any degree to their own fiat money, or is there are there other assets that they're going to be looking to, to put it into? So it's like, you know, even even someone like you're saying, like a, a dictator somewhere, might you know force his citizens as much as possible to use right. um, some you know, sovereign currency under his control, but he's certainly not going to want his own uh, money tied up in that. Well, I mean, that's what, like, like, if you look at Africa, if you look at, like, Southeast Asia, etc., um, you always had the, like, their local dictators forcing the, like, the, essentially the populace to use their own fiat shitcoin, but they themselves had dollar bank accounts in, in developed countries. Uh, and the like, same today, like in Venezuela, they don't want people to mine. They took all the mining equipment, but now they yeah, themselves they are mining, it. you know? Yeah. Yeah. No food for people, but they themselves eat at fine restaurants, you know? So it's the same thing. Right. There was a controversial, controversial video of Maduro eating steak with... Right. Uh, yeah. I kind of gave him the benefit, not Maduro, uh, Salpe, the benefit of the doubt. He lives in the Middle East, so I, my first thought, unless something's come out since then to the contrary, was, you know, we live in the Americas, so we're, like, really familiar with what's going on in Venezuela. My understanding is I think he lives in the UAE. Like, I don't know that he necessarily would have realized what he was getting. Uh, uh, Although someone, someone told me that at his uh, Miami location, there was a big mural of Che on the wall. But now that you say that, you know, like, I have to wonder if he, I mean, I, this is really giving him the benefit of the doubt on that, but you know, it would be interesting if being in Miami, he's trying to give, uh, you know, some kind of kind of play off. Uh, he might just be a commie, Michael. Thing. Maybe you have to accept I that your hero that. is a communist. That's I don't think. I, I think he would. Uh, he would still do what he has done, even if he knows that people are uh, star starving in Venezuela. Because he essentially would rather prefer to be buddies with someone powerful. Yeah, it's a it's a common human failing. Maduro is not the first uh, head of state to have uh, dined there. The, the you know the, the Saudi Arabian royalty has eaten with him, um, stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's, uh, on the topic of the Saudis, like my favorite story was that Prince bin Talal who spoke out against Bitcoin and then 
got arrested and you know they they took his assets basically and tortured him so hopefully he learned his lesson from that and he'll be investing in bitcoins going forward and and no corner is dangerous i mean there's that south korean guy yeah oh yeah the regulator or the one who died right yeah or mr money mustache remember that whole thing yeah yeah yeah. he rails against bitcoin all the time and then uh I think like Capital One shut froze his bank account. And he's like, "What am I gonna do?" Right. And then he got very, even more pissed because everybody was like, "This is why," you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although they'll freeze your bank account if you like use Bitcoin, like some of the banks. Yeah. Uh, if if they see Coinbase activity or whatever, they like will move in and and shut your account down, which is further validation that you should be buying Bitcoins. Ironically enough. Interestingly enough. In, like we also need to understand like talking about sort of the necessity of time necessity of attention necessity of like really rippling through um bitcoin is like kind of complex to a lot of people you know uh and uh like i've been like essentially in bitcoin since late 2013 and i'm still like learning so much every day like i mean i, I as i'm sure you guys all know how interdisciplinary it is but even i am wrapping my head through or, or noticing new potential third order, fourth order effects that might arise through this whole thing. And yeah. even forget about the second, third or, order stuff, just first order stuff, like wrapping your head around like how Bitcoin works, what it is, it's like, it takes time. It takes time, even if you're like a relatively intelligent individual. Um, and uh, doubly so, I think a lot of people find it difficult, even people that are smart or even successful in their previous endeavors, uh, they are unaccustomed, especially people from older generations, they're unaccustomed to Bitcoin's uh, non-tangible nature and also unaccustomed to it not being backed by the state. Yeah. And like, and, and a bunch of, and a couple of other smaller things like private keys, cryptography, uh, etc., etc. Uh, it takes time to get used to it, you know? Well, the, the non-tangible nature is a serious issue as we saw with that potential inflation bug mm-hmm. um and you you can't have that with gold right yeah. you know like it's unless unless the simulation we're living in has a bug in it and y- you you find a briefcase that you know prints infinite gold uh yeah. but um it it also that that peels another layer on the onion of this is ultimately driven by code and we can talk about how there's only going to be 21 million bitcoins but if the code does not actually reflect that, then it's entirely empty statements. And doesn't that really bring up the whole like ossification thing too? Yeah. Right? Is there a certain point where we should look at Bitcoin Core and say, okay, we are now, it, I don't know if this is possible, but say, you know, we're just done with this now. Yeah. Or, this is, or at this least is Bitcoin Core in perpetuity. Do that with like layer one, it eventually well, that's sort what of, I'm saying. Right, yeah. right, make it like, uh, make it like stone and then try to innovate on layer two, layer three, whatever. The, but this this bug didn't emerge from trying to extend layer one. Like it wasn't right. due to Segwit. Yeah. It was due to making improvements to the node, right. and exactly. it was yeah. like it was a very like subtle. The way it came together was very subtle. Um, so like on one hand, we we kind of should continue to make improvements to that code base and like fixing bugs might entail making improvements that might create other bugs. And so it's like a very uh, challenging issue, but um, 
like the the consensus part like they are trying to make it as uh ossified as possible right um and it's just like an ongoing software engineering challenge it's like pros and cons on one hand uh because it is software it's never going to be as hard as a metal yeah on the other hand because it is malleable because it is flexible it has allowed bitcoin to create this artificially scarce supply so there's like pros and cons that come with this malleability of its nature yeah because in the physical world you you could never get something that's like there's only give me 21 million of right 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 that, that's an interesting point and then the other part is just the um you know we were talking about people fantasizing about future use cases like you can't have that with a physical good uh, right, where exactly. the transaction costs are so low, and I say right, transaction right, right, right. costs in like the broadest sense possible, not just the transaction fees on right. On, chain. on, on yeah. top of on top of it, uh, Bitcoin being as a replacer to the central banking system, you can't uh, build um, like Lightning Network or, or or like Fabric Network or whatever. All these things directly on top of it in a trustless manner. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. There's no Lightning for gold. Right. Yeah. Right. I did like how Goldstein in one of his interviews, I think it was. Stefan Levera, he said that um, like Bitcoin layer one isn't competing with Visa, or Visa is essentially like a layer three or a layer four system yeah. on top of the on top of the dollar, you know. So that's gonna come later. We're competing more with the sort of the like the money printing machine and, and the monetary the base money base layer of the monetary system at large. And I think a lot of people come to that conclusion later on, and that goes to what you were saying, where there's so many levels that people have to think through before they really get into it. Right. Because in 2011, I didn't see that, yeah. right? Like, you know, well, I didn't really get that. We and used to think it was a payment I, I kind of yeah. got yeah. that later yeah. on, you know. Yeah. The printing is like at the same time, it kind of is a payment network and everything. Well, um, it's a payment network if you're incredibly privileged to uh, own, you know, enough Satoshis that Today you can transact on it for yeah, the equivalent I mean, of a nickel. But I, I don't know. I'm not in this class of people. Are there like rich people who can kind of get their way into just like the base Fed wire stuff when they want to move money? Oh, that's an interesting question of what qualifies you to be in the Fed wire system. Well, there's the that case going on about that right now. Yeah, um, with the guy who wants to start the new bank. bank. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That was very cool. Yeah. That's a really interesting case that kind of goes into that. Yeah. Essentially, and I only learned, I read the complaint, so I only know what I read from the complaint. Yeah. Apparently, you submit it, you, you have to be a chartered bank, if not federally chartered by your state, mm-hmm. and then you submit an application to the Federal Reserve, and they're supposed to, within, I think it's like 45 days, you're all hooked into the system. Yeah. But the whole that whole case is about the fact that the Fed um, refused to approve their application, yeah. and it's unclear as to whether or not the Fed even has the power to do that. They may be legally required to accept their application. Right, right. Yeah. So this speaks directly to my counter-argument when people say, all right, in this future vision of Bitcoin being a settlement system, and, uh, you know, there's... The, you don't use Bitcoin directly, you use it through banks or through like a labor two or whatever. Um, how is that any better than the current system? And my response to that is that it's it's open. Right. You don't have to apply for that at all. It's Anyone can come in and compete and be a Bitcoin bank, essentially, um, and have access to the Bitcoin settlement network and the peer-to-peer network. And like you're going to have people that are either... OG cypherpunks to, you know, oh, we started backed or we started this financial institution that it's like, and then everything in between. 
Uh, and it's not necessarily the case that it's just going to be like only financial institutions that are in bed with the government. Right. Or, if, I mean, if you're a big enough individual and you're buying something expensive enough, you might, you know, we yeah. know exactly where fees are going to land. You might post yeah. your transaction directly on layer one. Yeah. So that's, I, some, I, somebody said that uh, the, uh, the current fiat system is like eerily similar uh, to proof of stake. And you essentially have like only the big banks running full notes. Everyone else is running SPV. Mm -hmm. And then if there's major consensus change, just like the mining supply change, you can't do any. You can just have to eat it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. E EOS as a lesson in civics. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I think this might be a, a slightly like you know I don't know if it's controversial or whatever, but you know, people very often talk about how Bitcoin helps the unbanked. Um, and I think all of that is very true because, you know, I just saw something somewhere about how how many unbanked people around the world have cell phones. It's like how many of them can easily right. install, you know, a wallet and just start interacting with the network. Um, but there is also, you know, people who do have money. And hopefully I'm talking about people who, who earned it fairly on the market. Um, you know, the system also holds back what they're capable of doing with that money. Uh, which sort of like defeats the purpose of wanting to do anything to to build that wealth in the first place, which I guess some people would would want. Our mistakes are nothing new or startling. <clears throat> Think about that. Most of the time, most of the time, think about this. Most of the time when you make a mistake, it's something that you already knew. You actually know you're making the mistake when you're making it. Mm -hmm. Here's another thing he says. Errors spell the difference between professionalism and mediocrity. It's the little things. It's the little mistakes that you make. Next thing he think, says, disciplined soldiers are the main ingredient in victory. Well, guess what the main ingredient in victory in your life is? Discipline? Yeah. All day. All day. He says there's no magic formula or sweatless solution by which one can achieve their goals. I think he just said there is no there is no shortcut. There is no hack. Yeah. There's no sweatless solution. You you're gonna have to work. Then he says this no military unit is ever completely trained. Guess what? Neither are you. Neither am I. There is Always weakness to work on. Always. A lot of them. Mm -hmm. He says this in Vietnam Primer. Combat is too serious a business to permit easy excuse of even one mistake. Now think about this. Okay. Combat's too serious a business. Why is that? It's because you can die. But guess what? We're all going to die. We're all going to die. So why would we, why would we allow ourselves to make easy, easy excuses? Why would you allow that? Mm. Combat's life and death. So is life. So you shouldn't allow yourself these easy excuses. And then the last section that that he that he talks about that I read, it can absolutely be applied. It can absolutely, absolutely be applied. He says, another weakness common among junior leaders is the inaccurate reporting of the estimate of the situation. 
they are either so exaggerated or so watered down that they are not meaningful. Now, again, if you apply this to yourself, what you realize is that you got these junior leaders that they're lying to their chain of command. I mean, they're, they're, they're exaggerating or they're watering things down, but they're basically lying to their chain of command. And w- how does that translate to us? We lie to ourselves. Mm. That's how it translates to us. We lie to ourselves. We don't tell ourselves the way things really are. And when we do that, then we can't fix our problems. Mm. If we can't fix our problems, we're not going to improve. So we have to be truthful to ourselves. I have to be truthful to myself. You have to be truthful to yourself. You have to stop rationalizing, stop making excuses, stop telling yourself little watered-down assessments of where you're really at. Tell yourself the truth so that you can get where you want to go. You can be who you want to be. You can be who you should be. Who you should be when you do what you know you should do, when you pay attention to the little things, when you implement discipline, true and unflinching and unmitigated discipline in your life, when you stop, when you stop trying to find a sweatless solution, when you look for weaknesses to work on, when you allow no easy excuses, and all that starts when you stop lying to yourself. When you stop lying to yourself, that's when you can become who you know you should be. When you tell yourself the truth about where you are so you can make sure you are in the right place. And if you're not in the right place, then you can get yourself on the path to get there. The path of discipline, the path of hard work, and the path of truth. Truth.